the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, you need only to pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. I'm excited about the weekend. I hope you are as well. Somebody might get saved this week and they'd be the last one. And then the Lord would take us away. I got a question about that in a few minutes. But um, it might be the last non-Jew to get saved, and then we could go be with Jesus. It is Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, and I know many of your churches also celebrate Communion on the first Sunday of the month. It's always a very special time for us. Uh, We actually get to sit down and share um, in everything that Christ is, who he, what he's done for us. Uh, we get to share in his victory. We get to share in his sufferings. Uh, and this is the symbolic uh, moment where we recognize and celebrate this fact. Jesus said, uh, as often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. And uh, that's uh, what I love to do. I know I've told you this before, but communion so matters to me. I've not missed a communion Sunday in the more than 28 years uh, we've been here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, It's just that important to me. And uh, I'm blessed more than others because I get to do it three times with the church here on Sunday afternoon. Um, By the way, tonight I'm going to be teaching uh, the end of Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Uh, I think it's a very important study and I hope a, a really encouraging study as well. So that's tonight. And then on Sunday, I'm going to be finishing uh, chapter 15 in the book of Acts. Having said that, while we wait for your wait your phone calls, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. Um, here's an interesting one, anonymous from our email inbox. I'm going to edit this. Uh, Pastor Ron, what do you think manna really tasted like? Um, what I mean is, for the many years that the Hebrews ate it, do you think that God would have changed the taste of it? I don't think I could taste the same taste every day for years. Now, obviously, this is somebody who knows me, because I hear that you do with your pancakes. I can imagine a conversation with God as angels, a uh, conversation going something like this. Lord, are you making... Uh, what are you making for your children today? And he goes, today I'm making chicken a la king manna. Tomorrow it's chef surprise manna. 
Uh, I'm having a little fun with this, but I'm keeping this email anonymous so that God doesn't know it's me sending this. I laugh out loud. Seriously, though, what do you think it tasted like? Well, I don't know. It tasted like uh, coriander seed and honey. Uh, I know what honey tastes like. I have no idea what uh, coriander seed tastes like, but that's what it was. They were little cakes that were spread out all over the wilderness. One of the nice things, Anonymous, I think God did, is he set them on a, 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 a bottom of dew so that they wouldn't get dirty, and um, and the, the people enjoyed them. Now, you mentioned that I can eat the same thing. Uh, I'm I'm of the school that if it tastes good once, the first time I have it, it's going to taste good the rest of my life. And I really can and do eat the same things all the time. So I'm not one of those people that likes variety or, or needs variety. Um, but um, clearly, like so many of us, we, we start to take for granted that which God has gifted us with. And while this was a gift from God, you know, they were worried about being hungry or starving starving or running out of water in the wilderness. The reality is that God made sure that wouldn't happen and they should have trusted him and been grateful for it, uh, but they weren't. Now, I'm sure the Jewish mothers did the best they could to spice it up and make it different, uh, but the reality is um, the 40 years in the wilderness was really a consequence of their unbelief. And sometimes uh, when we are unbelieving, we're unwilling to take God at his word, uh, sometimes life is going to taste pretty much the same all the time. So that's the best I can do with that question. But uh, you are right. I don't have any problem eating the same thing over and over and over. Now, here is a question from Jeffrey from our email inbox. Um, Jeffrey says, good day, Pastor Ron, praying you are doing well. In reading Revelation 21.2, Regarding the 12 gates, apparently these gates are important because they seem to be a pathway to Christ during or after his second coming. I'm wondering why pastors don't teach of these gates or the 12 tribes mentioned, yet continue to teach of the rapture of the church. And then parenthetically, listen to this, which I found out is false doctrine. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says he's coming back for his church. Scripture speaks over and over. Uh, he is gathering his elect, Matthew twenty four twenty two. not church. Uh, please mention on the radio where scripture states this, he will gather the church. What church? Unfortunately, there are many people in church whose heart is far away from Christ. Um, Jeffrey, you know, I think you're one of them. You're, you're, you're being really, really judgmental. And I'm going to give you a verse I want you to really just think about. Okay, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul, writing to Timothy, says this, They, and he's speaking of people like you, they want to be teachers of the law. But they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, I give people a lot of latitude on this program to express opinions or to ask questions, people that really want to know the answers. But you don't want to know the answer here. You've read some nutcase or listened to some nutcase on on the Internet saying that there's no such thing as a rapture. That's false teaching. And I don't know why you're tying it in the gates. If you go to our website, CalvarySA.com, uh, I taught very specifically on the gates, uh, not necessarily in Revelation 21, but before that, when they the, the 12 gates are 12 giant pearls, and we talk about them. We talk about their memorial value. Uh, we talk about the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. We talk uh, also uh, in another context with the crown or with the uh, the thrones. Um, the 12 apostles are being memorialized in heaven. So um, uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about the gates. Um, they're not... Um, would you say the the uh, a gathering or a door open where gathering is elect? Uh, that's not true. Now you're you're missing a couple things. I'm going to tell you the Bible verses in just a moment. Um, Jesus during the Great Tribulation, uh, the rapture of the church happens just before the Great Tribulation. Jesus is then going to turn his attention to the people of Israel. It's a completely different dispensation. Now. Uh, when he gathers his elect, you're right, 24-22 in Matthew, the Olivet Discourse, is not about the church. He's talking about gathering his people, the elect, that's Israel, not individual people, but Israel, gathering them to himself, coming back 
to the place where Jesus promised Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and David, uh, and others that that uh, he would sit on the throne of David and rule and reign for uh, a thousand years. Well, that's going to happen, uh, but those gates don't have anything to do with that. Those gates are just uh, the way that we're going to go into uh, the holy city. Of course, in his church, um, it's going to be completely different. Now, the implication, when you said, um, unfortunately, there are many people in church whose heart is far away from Christ. Uh, I'd really ask you to think about that. Really, really and truly think about that. Because, um, again, I want to say, your heart is very harsh and judgmental. And as confidently as you affirm this, frankly, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the passages of Scripture to understand. I'm just going to give you two. Um John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's with his disciples. Their hearts are broken because they finally understood that he is going to die, that he is going to leave them, and they are crestfallen. And here's what he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Here's the key. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, that's as clear as it can be. He's going to come and take us to be with him where he is. Where is he right now, Jeffrey? He is uh, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Very simple, very straightforward. And he is um, going to, to bring us, because we who are righteous, remember his righteousness given to us, we who are righteous cannot be uh, judged for sin because our sins have already been judged. Uh, and Jesus, of course, took that judgment. Um First Corinthians 15, 51, 51 and 52, actually, Jeffrey, listen, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is something that's never been revealed before in detail. There were hints, there were the pictures of it, but this is, this is the doctrine. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, and that's a euphemism for die, you know that, but we will be changed, and that's the Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. In other words, we're going to be transformed instantly in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Those who have already gone are with Jesus already there, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And that's when we are going to be with Jesus in our glorified, resurrected bodies. So the rapture of the church is real. Uh, it is going to happen. It is a promise. Paul calls it uh, our blessed hope. And um, Jeffrey, be very careful um, that somebody who is lacking the biblical education that you're demonstrating by asking the question the way you asked it. Oh, by the way, it's also lacking love. And, um, boy, there's a lot of arrogance in the way you put that question. Be really, really careful. Be careful what you so confidently affirm. Here is a question. This one is from Christopher. Christopher, I answered this question last week, and apparently you didn't hear it, so I'll get it again. It says, in Leviticus 12, why did God give one week of uncleanliness to the mom when a boy was born, but when a girl was born, he gives two weeks of uncleanliness. Uh, I would add, Christopher, that he also doubles the amount of time of uncleanness for the mother when it's a girl as opposed to the boy. Now, the answer is pretty straightforward. Uh, Jewish boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So that's why he did it. They, he would give the, the mothers of boys uh, only one week so that on the next day, the eighth day, uh, they could be circumcised. Uh, the other idea with the, the, the boy and the girl and the, the uncleanliness of the mother, uh, this was sort of God's ancient maternity leave. You know, this was a way to give the mom a chance to bond with uh, her babies. And um, uh, while it was longer with the the girls and the boys, 
this would be a very welcome relief to the mom not having to do a bunch of stuff and she would be able to bond with her mother so it's 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 sort of the ancient equivalent of our modern day maternity leave but that's the reason uh, directly to your question on the eighth day the boys must be circumcised, which, of course, you know, was the sign of the covenant between God and his people, the Jews. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Marcella says, what about Hunius the Apostle when it comes to women in leadership? Um, let me read this to you, uh, Marcella, and the, the passage of Scripture where she's mentioned, and uh, I'll talk about it. Uh, Paul is saying, Greet Andronicus and Honius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, most of, and, and, and the, the newer translations translates this, Hunius, with an S on the end, uh, which is masculine. Um, there are earlier translations which say hunia, which is feminine in translation. Uh, and yet the, the general thinking on this, the, the scholarship is that, that these are two men. And the idea is supported by the fact that they were in prison uh, with with Paul. Um, so, so that's the first thing. It's more than likely that hunia is a man, or Hunias is a man and not a woman at all. Uh, the fact that they're Paul's relatives, we'll talk about that in a moment. But when he says they are outstanding among the apostles, it does not say that they were apostles. It, it's just that they are outstanding among the apostles. And what that would mean, uh, Marcella, is that um, the apostles knew them, could vouch for them, were aware of their godliness, their contribution to the church of God, uh, and they were just outstanding. It's like when we see somebody and say, wow, what a godly man or what a godly woman uh, she is. And and when we, we notice that, that's that's what's in view here. It doesn't mean that there's a group of apostles and they're outstanding among those and are apostles as a result. It doesn't say they're apostles, and we know they can't be apostles because of all of the other teaching in the Bible. Remember, one um, obscure greeting doesn't disqualify um, um, the rest of Scripture. Uh, there's actually a website, the Hunia Project, and you go, and it's all about justifying that which God says is not justifiable, and that's that women can be in leadership, and if uh, Hunia was and she was an apostle, then, then women can be. The Bible is very, very clear. Now, one thing I like to talk about when I think about this is, is um, they, they were related to Paul, uh, they were in Christ before he was, and I just think about how much, how fervently they prayed for Saul of Tarsus. I mean, if they were believers before he was, um, they certainly would have been aware of his persecuting the church. He would have had such a, a horrible reputation. People were terrified of him. I'm certain their hearts were broken and they were embarrassed by their relationship with him. But at the same time, he's a relative. They loved him. And, and no doubt, Marcella, no doubt that they were praying constantly night and day for Jesus to get a hold of this man. And if that's true, and I believe it is, if that's true, imagine how they share in the rewards that the Apostle Paul will be getting in heaven. I just love the the, 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 the picture here that they were praying for their relative who was so lost, probably thinking it was impossible, he'll never get saved, probably asking God, please do something, forgive him. And and, and yet uh, Jesus had a plan the whole time to answer their prayers. So, Marcella, that's the answer. Remember, we can't take an obscure verse or a, a, an obscure website with an agenda and disqualify the clear teaching of Scripture in other places. You know, we keep looking for loopholes, but the reality is there aren't any loopholes. Tracy says, oh, I got a phone call. Let me go here first. I got Marilyn in from Converse Online One. Marilyn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. My question, as we're in Leviticus study, is so convicting. I've already had to confess to my mom so many times. I was <laughs> um, 
Um, so this question is, um, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, one thing I noticed is um, when um, Aaron's sons are referred a reference in chapters um, 1, verses 5, 8, and 11, they're referred to as Aaron's sons, the priest. Uh-huh. In chapter 2, verse 2, they're referred to Aaron's sons, the priest. And um, chapter 3, the last time they're referenced to is Aaron's sons, the priest. And then after that, it goes to Aaron's sons, or um, the son of Aaron, or the anointed priest and priest. My question is, as um, the, the different sacrifices that were being offered, um, why did they not stop, stop being called um, the what did I say? I'm sorry, I'm nervous. Um, That's okay. The sons of priests. Yeah, of uh, the priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in chapter 10, they started offering um, a sacrifice of, um, you know, burnt offerings that was um, not pleasing to the Lord, and they, they were killed. So <laughs> did the Lord see, did God see, um, you know, in advance that they were, they were losing favor with him or something, that they were no longer being called um, in the um, the priest sons or the sons of pre- the Aaron's um, sons the priest. I don't know if I'm making yeah, sense. You you are making sense, Marilyn. I I think the distinction, the idea, especially at the beginning, is they were the anointed priest Aaron and his sons. Later, the sons become descendants of other sons and then descendants, but they come from the Aaronic priesthood. But I I think uh, at the beginning, it's just these are instructions to the people. And they, they were the priests at the time. And yes, God did know that they were going to offer strange fire. He did know that they were going to, uh, they were going to die. Um, you know, they, they abused their, their uh, position of honor and privilege. Uh, and um, uh, whether or not God um, changed the nomenclature uh, later because he knew or not, we don't know. But I, I think if we just read it in a general sense, they were the ones who were there at the time. And later, of course, they would be other descendants. And the fact that, um, the, 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 you know, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 happen, and then um, chapter 10 happens. Remember, the whole book of Leviticus only takes place over about 30 days. So um, God is simply setting the standard for things in the future. And um, um, obviously he knew that they were going to blow it and and they would pay with their lives. Marilyn, good to hear from you. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Ray on line two. Ray, thank you for holding. You're on the air. And Pastor Ron. Hope you're doing well. I am. It's good to hear from you. Good. Thank you. Um, I have a question, and uh, I I wonder if you could uh, back up with some Bible verses, something, and it's kind of about, uh, I don't know how to praise it, but uh, as far as uh, a lie uh, versus even being in best intention, you know, trying to to tell a uh, mistruth, even if it's to, you know, make it easier on yourself or someone else. But I think your answer is it's never okay to lie. And an untruth would be a lie in my, in my mind. But yep. uh, are there any Bible verses? Because I, I don't think I was able to explain my position on this very well. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I got I'll, it, Ray. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's always good to hear from Ray. I miss you, Ray. Uh, a couple of th- a couple of things that you you called the right time. Uh, Leviticus chapter four um, uh, that that I just was preparing today for next Wednesday uh, is is about un- unintentional sin, uh, but it's still sin that has to be sacrificed for. It has to be acknowledged and repented of. And uh, you know we have the sense in our our culture that uh, you know white lies not a bad thing. You know if you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or you just don't want to get into involved in a conversation, just a little white lie. It, but, but it's never okay. 
the, the Jesus said the the devil is the father of lies. Uh, we certainly don't want to be a part of that family. So um, Leviticus chapter four talks about unintentional sin, um, but uh, there's a lot of New Testament uh, Bible verses that talk about truth. Jesus is the truth. And we have to, to, in order to to fellowship with Jesus, we have to stand on and for the truth. And um, Ray, the the reality is that we we like to justify lying when there's no justification for it. I think that speaks to um, the sinful condition of our hearts, our flesh. Um, you know, we can we can make excuses for most of the things that we want to do and make it sound spiritual. But the reality is, is when we lie, we lie because our faith is weak or we lie because we're surrendering to the flesh. Um, we lie because it makes things better for us. And that's never a position that God would have us take. So I, I think um, I hope that helps. Leviticus chapter four. I'll be studying it uh, here next Wednesday night. And you can watch it live stream, Ray. Good to hear from you. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left on our week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Friday edition of The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 hey did i say earlier that i'm going to be teaching at galatians 5 the fruit of the spirit and um what a what a life of love really really looks like good study tonight uh, you can watch it at calvarysa.com. Tracy says, Pastor Ron, what is a boot camp church? Uh, Tracy, I kind of looked that up because I hadn't heard the term boot camp church before, but it's sort of a euphemism for churches like Stephen Furtick has. You know, he claims that his church is not for believers. Uh, his church is for unbelievers. He wants to get them in there, get them saved. When they get saved, he wants to get them out. And so new people can be coming in. The problem is uh, a church like that is not making disciples. And remember, we're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. God does a conversion work. And in my opinion, for a guy like Stephen Furtick, this is nothing more than an excuse to be um, off the wall, silly at times, um, just there just isn't really anything of value that happens at a church like that. But I think this is a church where they focus on getting new people in all the time. There's going to be a big emphasis in these churches in the worship. The worship is going to last a very, very long time. It's going to be very demonstrative. It's going to be very physical. Uh, it's going to be accompanied by lights. It's, it's, it's a performance rather than worship. Uh, and then the message is going to be whatever, in this case, Stephen Furtick wants to preach about. But these are churches that focus on unbelievers rather than discipling people. Now, this isn't anything that's new. This has been going on since the seeker-sensitive movement started, and that started back before I got saved. Actually, the, the church that I went to at first, Paula uh, was, was going to this church uh, before I got saved. Um, they they made no bones about the fact that this is not a church to grow and be discipled. This is a church to come and be introduced to Jesus. Now, they did it with the right heart, and they did it uh, certainly different than somebody like Furtick does. But uh, that's not really a church. In fact, what they ought to do in cases like this is remove the word church, because what we understand as a church biblically is a place where people can come have a family, be discipled, learn to be more like Jesus, and apply the lessons in our Bible studies to everyday life. Uh, there's no description at all, uh, biblically, uh, that the that, that church is a place where we just come in, get them saved, at least we they answer altar calls. Uh, very emotional, very, very uh, physical in terms of, of the performance. Uh, and then send them off to someplace else to get um, to get discipled. 
So they shouldn't call it church. They can call it a social club. Uh, they can call it a nightclub, uh, but but it's not a church. So um, that's what a boot camp church refers to. But Tracy, remember, they're not really churches at all. Thank you for the question. Uh, here's an anonymous question. My pastor has gone quite a lot from church. He travels, uh, but too often leaves his teaching duties to others. Should I confront him about it? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, obviously I would need more uh, information. Uh, but certainly, rather than confront him, I would never do that. That that suggests an argument. Uh, I would just ask him. I think this is a question that that um, you have every right as a parishioner to ask. Go to your pastor and say, can I ask you a question in private? I mean, no disrespect. I'm just curious. You're my pastor, and yet you're gone a lot. And so I've got these strangers who are now teaching your word, and I just would like your response to that. And make sure it's not in a threatening way or in an agitated way, but give him a chance to explain. Um. I could be gone, and, and I'll, I'll make this personal. I could be gone a lot. Um, I could be gone um, teaching in other churches. Uh, fortunately, I guess I get asked to teach. Um, but, but but you know, I feel like the Lord told me, and it's always nice to be asked. But I feel like the Lord told me one time, "You got a job. <laughs> Your job is there to be with the people that I've entrusted to you." And uh, honestly, Anonymous, I like being here. And uh, I think that's a pastor's heart. Um, but because I don't know any more details, and I certainly don't know your pastor, um, I, I think you, you need to give him an opportunity to be able to answer that question for you. And I think it's a legitimate question. You know, you need to know that your your pastor is going to be consistent, that he can be counted on, that he's going to teach the word um with love, but 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 with truth, you're gonna do it consistently. And if you've got new people coming in, whether they're staff or visiting pastors, it doesn't really matter. I, I know a lot of pastors that just love to travel. Uh, I'm on completely the other end of that spectrum. If I never traveled, I would be happy with that. So um, talk to him about it. I think that's the best thing. That's the Christian way to deal with questions like this. Um, Donald says, Pastor Ron, can you explain why believing we're in the last days is important, please? Donald, I can. You know, Jesus said a wicked, lazy servant says, my master is delaying his coming. And I think we need to live with the urgency of the return of Jesus. Jesus talked about knowing the signs of the times. And because we're given the signs of the end, um, we're supposed to be able to interpret those signs of the end. And I think if we really believe that Jesus was coming or could come at any moment, I think it would change the way we lived our lives. Certainly, we wouldn't procrastinate. Uh, we wouldn't um, um, lose our sense of priority. Uh, serving Jesus would be the most important thing that we could do. Um, and and I think that urgency creates um, disciples urgent to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our primary calling in these last days. I think the man or the woman, oh, and Peter calls them scoffers, by the way. Oh, where is this coming that you talk about? Uh, he delays his coming. And Peter said, no, 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 he's not slack concerning his promise. He's just patient, unwilling that any should perish. So if you really believe that Jesus is coming soon, that he could come even before this radio program, goes off the air. If you really believe that, and there's no reason biblically not to believe that, then it would give you that sense of urgency. Uh, Donald, I personally believe that this was um, one of two major motivations for the the power in the first century church. I think that the, the first major motivation is gratitude. These Christians were so grateful to have been forgiven um, for for crucifying Christ. Give us Barabbas, the Jews cried out. I think they were so grateful that that gratitude really motivated their service. I think the other promise, um, the other motivation that, that, that availed so much power, 
I think, was their real expectancy that Jesus is coming any moment. You cannot read Paul's epistles without understanding that he expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. And that turned Paul into an absolute zealot. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He said that he owed it both the Greek and Jew. He was a debtor to them or obligated to proclaim the gospel. He couldn't be quiet about it because he expected at any moment to see the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean, and Donald, this is where we pre-tribbers sometimes uh, get into trouble. People say, well, well, you know, you're, you're, you keep saying it, and Jesus hasn't come, and you're discouraging people. Um, no, we're, we're, we also are obligated to tell people that Jesus said that we're to occupy until he comes. So the fact that he could come at any moment ought to then motivate us to be about our Father's business. I love in in John chapter 4 when Jesus um, made a a trip to the Samaritan well and met the woman. Um, He said uh, um, his disciples went to get some food because Jesus was hungry. And when they came back, um, they looked and said, well, you know, you were hungry. He says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus knew he was on a timetable. He knew that there were only a certain amount of days left. And I think that's how he intends for us to live our lives. Now, the fact that we don't know the day um, should inspire us to be out uh, and about telling people about Jesus. He's coming back. You need to be ready. Uh, Imagine what it would be like if John the Baptist had a ministry in these last days. You you talk about finding a river and shouting in that big supernatural voice of his, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or is near. Um, That's what we ought to be doing. Not yelling at people, but, but letting people know what Jesus has done for us. So that, Donald, is why it is important um, if we think, oh, he's not going to come, then we're going to slack off. It's that simple. And uh, there's no biblical excuse for ever slacking off. We're to be um, fervent, uh, zealous, Paul said, keeping our spiritual fervor for the Lord. Brian says, and I'm laughing because, Brian, when I got this question, uh, it tickled me. Brian says, it drives me crazy when churches don't start on time. Should I mention it to my pastor? Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. Um, This is one of my pet peeves. And Brian, I can tell you, 28 years, we've never started one minute late. There was one time when my worship team, and and believe me, my worship pastor knows, um, it doesn't matter where I'm in the building, it doesn't matter where I am or anything else going on, at the time church is supposed to start, music is coming from his guitar and from his microphone. And we actually have a countdown on our screen. And when it hits zero, um, welcome to, to Calvary Chapel. Um, and then let's worship the Lord. So, so uh, time it is, it is rude and inconsiderate of people's times when you um, are casual or late and you don't start on time. Um, you know, Calvary chapels are famous uh, for being kind of laid-back churches. And among many Calvary chapel pastors, there's the old, yeah, we start at Calvary time, which is usually five to eight minutes after the, the scheduled service, and nobody's in a hurry. And I just think that is the rudest, most inconsiderate thing ever. So start on time, and yes, by all means, you should mention it to your pastor. And if he doesn't care about your time, if people get here to church on time, uh, at, at, no matter how many people are there, um, we need to, to respect the effort they made to get there on time, to start on time and to end on time. Those are very, very important things. So, yes, I would mention it to your pastor. Um, so, you know, this may not be a big deal to you, but just just want you to let me know it is a big deal to me. Why is it that we don't start on time? And um, then you can make a decision uh, later. So, oh, I didn't, I, my producer stopped me, thank you. Uh, we, we One time, um, uh, our, our worship pastor started to play, and then all the power went off. And the power went off, and that's the only time that we really started worship a little bit late. But we started on time, but then we had to break it for a minute. 
while uh, we waited for the power to come on. And it, and it came on, I think, in about 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. So other than that, Brian, um, that is one of my pets here. So start on time always. 340-9585. Uh, Maria wants to know, how can I approach a Christian friend about the sin she is in denial about? Uh, Maria, she's a friend. She's a believer. You're obligated to approach her. And I love that the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart to do it. But the way you approach her is out of love and out of concern. And uh, in doing so, you're going to be risking your friendship. But that's okay because Jesus is going to be proud of you. So what you do is you just approach this friend and tell her that you may justify what you're doing. But the Bible says it's sin, and because I only want God's best for you, I'm pleading with you to be honest about this sin, and rather than be in denial, um, get to the point where you can repent. Go before the Lord. And Maria, if God's put this on your heart, I can promise you the Holy Spirit's already speaking to her about it as well. Again, remember, you may not get the response that you want. Um, but that's okay. Again, that's okay. We got to be tough enough to deal with that kind of a response. Uh, but you've got to approach her and you've got to tell her, because I love you, this is of concern to me. You're living like this. And the Bible says that's sin. And, and I just want you to repent and get right with God and then leave it at that. And you've done your, your job. Um, beyond that, the choice is a choice that she alone can make about how to fix this and how to respond. Yoli says, I know God is holy, so why does he allow evil Satan to come into his presence? Yoli, I think most Christians, when we get to heaven, are going to ask God that very question. I know one that is for sure, and that's Job. But uh, I don't know. There's no earthly explanation. We know that the Bible calls the devil a servant of God. Now, he's not serving God because he wants to. Um, God is using even his rebellion to accomplish God's will. Um, but um, but why? If, if I was God, Yoli, and I'm not, but if I was God, I would keep that door locked so tight that Satan could never come into the throne room of God. Maybe this is something that came with his creation. Um, he was the, the the highest of the the angels, the most beautiful of angels, and maybe that access is just something that he has until the end when he's kicked out of heaven. But uh, for now, we know that Satan has um, the ability to come into the presence of God. We know that he accuses us before the throne of God night and day. That's his job, and uh, I wish God wouldn't let him in there. But he does, and uh, God is the one in control, and God has a purpose for that. So, you know, you and I, we might make a different decision, but um, it's one of the reasons God teaches us in his word how to fight spiritual battles. Thank you, Yoli. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Martine. Is it okay for Christians who got divorced to be remarried because they realize it was a sin to get divorced in the first place? Yeah, Martine, it is not only okay, it's God's preference. So certainly, um, if you are married and then you get divorced um, and then you, you both get right with God, remember, all marriage in the Lord needs to be an equally yoked marriage. So if you're both right with God and you want to give it another shot, um, boy, go to the Lord, thank him for the second chance, and do it. We have a frequent caller on the program, uh, uh, Matthew, that comes to our church. And Matthew has a great story. Um, you know, Matthew ended up in jail, um, divorced in jail, just terrible things. Well, as the Lord would have it, we met Matthew and and changed him, and he and his ex-wife uh, got back together um, the right way and and uh, remarried. Um, now they've had a couple of more babies in in the interim, and God is doing really, really neat things. So uh, the idea that that um, uh, we would remarry, confessing our sins, accepting responsibility 
for the, the, what caused the divorce in the first place would be something that would be really and truly pleasing to the Lord Martin. So yes, yes, yes. Uh, we've had several people. Uh, I've got another, uh, um, Sean and Jessica, um, their son uh, and daughter literally prayed them back together. Married, divorced, uh, both of them doing their own thing, and these kids just praying daily. And uh, it was neat to watch what the Lord's done. So we've we've been blessed to watch that several times. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We've got time, I think, for a call or two if you do it quickly, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Polly says. As a parent of young kids, I'm terrified of sending them to public school. What alternatives are there for me besides homeschool? I don't feel qualified to teach at home. Um, Polly, first of all, thank you for being honest about your qualifications to teach. Homeschool is okay, but it is a disaster if the homeschool teacher is not a qualified teacher. I think the one thing that we want to do is recognize that some people have the gift to teach and other people don't. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is somebody who is is uh, trying to learn being taught by somebody who doesn't have the ability or the capacity to teach. So I get that. I also get, Paulie, your fear of public schools. Uh, our children are being indoctrinated, brainwashed now. Um, they're being taught things that have absolutely no uh, business being taught. They certainly don't have anything to do with education. Um, there is an agenda in the public schools. I'm, I'm not a conspiracy nut or anything else, but you cannot miss the, 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 the woke culture in our public schools. And remember, most of the teachers in our public schools, especially at the younger grades, are pretty young people just out of the university system and agreed to teach, and, and they have been indoctrinated uh, as well. So uh, I I absolutely um, would never again, and, and this is a fairly new thing for me, maybe in the last year and a half, because I always believe that Christian kids need to be in public schools. Uh, the kids there need light too, um, but that was before it became so obvious. And maybe it goes back a little bit more than this. Um, a lot was exposed during COVID time with the teaching online. Uh, but but I, I would refuse to send them to public school. Now, that doesn't leave many choices. Private schools uh, are expensive and some people can't afford them. Um, Polly, God agrees with you and uh, it's one of the reasons he's asked us to have a free school. Now, clearly we have a huge waiting list. Um, our building right now isn't big enough uh, to, to add other kids and, and believe me, we could quadruple in size um, overnight if we had the space and the teachers to do it. Um, but um, in in my view, whatever it cost, uh, I would rearrange my budget, my priorities financially uh, to make sure that my kids uh, were in a Christian education. Um, if you wait a year, uh, God willing, our new building will be done and we'll have a whole lot of space uh, to get rid of our waiting list. But until then... Um, you need to get them in, no matter the cost. You need to get them in to uh, a Christian school. They need to learn. They need to be able to socialize with other kids. But what they need to learn about is Jesus Christ. And we make no uh, uh, apologies, Polly, for our school. It is a school to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We also happen to teach them uh, the things that an education is, is uh, makes necessary. And our school is academically very rigorous. Um, our college placement is exceptional uh, percentage of, of uh, the kids that go here. And um, so find a, a good Christian school and uh, ask for some help. I know some churches have some scholarship help available, so ask. But do not any longer. I cannot in good conscience uh, suggest that people send uh, their kids to public school. Uh, last one is from Felicia. She says, is not reading the Bible a sin? I have a hard time understanding it. Um, 
it's not a sin. I mean, I can't say it's a sin, Felicia, but here's what I can say. It's it's really damaging your ability to walk with the Lord. And nobody understood the Bible the first time they picked it up. So just read it. Do the work. Discipline yourself. Be a workman, rightly dividing the word. That takes time. And trust that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you um, the, the word and, and, and how God will speak to you through the word. But if you're not reading the Bible, you're not hearing from the Lord. That's as simple as I can make it. And uh, and and because of that, Felicia, you are going to sin. Now, I say all the time, David said, I've hidden the word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. I say all the time that Christians who are not in their Bibles, and I'm not talking about just a casual reader, but Christians that are not really digging in, studying the word of God, those Christians are all of them going to be convinced by the world that we live in that uh, the Bible's requirements are really sort of antiquated, out of date, and um, and they're going to be won over, and they're going to believe that all of this stuff that God calls sin really isn't sin at all. So, Felicia, it is a weapon that God has given you, and to not read it, um, remember, we've got to grow in our faith, and that's how you do it. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Um, You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, by the way, we've got a baptism this Sunday. If you haven't been baptized and want to, go to our website, calvarysa.com. We'd love to have you. God bless you. See you on Monday. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.